Well, good morning. I want to reiterate uh, uh, Carl's shout out to Tom. Hi, Tom. I hope you're listening to us and joining us in worship from your hospital room, or better yet, I hope you're not, and we'll watch this later, and that you're sleeping. Um, I've heard everything only indirectly through Sonia, but uh, word is that Tom has been strong and sore, but not in as much pain as you might imagine. Uh, but they did have to do, within the spectrum of least to work to most work that they would do in the procedure, they, they did more than they did less. So he's going to have some recovery time, and we'll be praying for him and continuing to uh, to miss him, but also hope that he takes the time to heal and comes back to us with less pain in his life. So uh, we pray for him. Um, this morning, for those of you who are here a couple weeks ago, you'll notice that I picked Exodus again. That's uh, a mercy and a safeguard against having to get the shepherd's hook again for going too long. So I do not have to preach the whole book. We can build on what we talked about last time together, which is a blessing. And I do have my eyes on the clock, and I have my contacts in. So, And I give, I give Julie permission to catch the spirit if I'm going too long and stand up and say hallelujah or as I was talking about to some folks this morning, break into the Lyle Lovett song. There's a song he has uh, called Church, and it's a song about a preacher who's up there preaching, and he starts preaching so long, so one of the congregants goes up and sneaks up to the balcony into the choir, and he gets them all to lean in, and he says, you're going to sing with me. And I burst into a song to the preacher about how, hey, this sermon is pretty good, but it's time to eat. Let's go eat. And they start singing about biscuits and gravy and about how they need to go. Um, so... We step into this, uh, back into Exodus, this, um, this, this whole book. Remember, we talked about it being called the Book of Names, and all of the ways that if you watch the names, you get an insight into what we're trying to understand, and that the great hope of Exodus is that we would come to know God, not just know God, but to remember God, and to see God in the world around us, in all circumstances, and to hear God. His voice and call into newness, but also obedience, even in ways that might seem strange. And the whole book has been set forward into motion by the fact that God even overcomes our insufficiencies in that area. If you'll remember from Exodus 2, 23 through 25, and the way that the whole drama of the Exodus narrative begins in this circumstances of great oppression and becoming forced to serve Pharaoh and a, and a whole landscape of fear and anxiety and the accumulation of goods and protections against imagined enemies and threats and an attempt to control the Israelites who are flourishing in their midst. Um, it is their cry as their bodies are pushed to their limits that makes us realize that God knows and God remembers and God sees and God hears and that is the action first and foremost the cry goes up and this God that we're learning about that we're coming to know is a God who is responsive who is affected by these cries it says during those many days the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the children of Israel, Israel the firstborn 
son, the firstborn daughter, his children of Israel, and God knew them. And um, that's what set this into motion. And we started and we dwelt there about how it sets up the whole drama of the whole book between this regime of Pharaoh, fear, anxiety, the, the, the amnesia about life as blessing that all ultimately cuts Pharaoh off from the very blessing and lifehood of God so much that he inverts everything that a great Pharaoh should be. He, he ruins the Nile. He ruins the crops. He brings curse where there should be blessings. And we looked at how the whole thing that's caught up in all of this is not just some... There is a particularity because God is working through this people. To know God, God must speak with words we understand. He must work with people that we can know. We must be able to see him and touch him in some way through his relationship with particular people. And there's a certain kind of knowing. I think we all know this intuitively. I can say that I love everyone, and I can see somebody walk down the street, and I can say I love that person. Maybe I even know that person's name because he's John. He lives next door or something. But we all know that that is not, that's one layer of knowing. But there's another kind of knowing that only comes through time and presence. And the particular way that God is helping these people to come and be his children and to know him through time and presence is what we're drawn in to look at. And ultimately, it's so that the whole world can then come to know this God. And that's the whole thing you have to remember with this whole narrative. Even as it zooms into this particularity with these people in this time, in this place, it's a part of the story where God ultimately wants Israel to become a whole community of priests who in their very life and relationship with God come to know and remember and see and hear God in ways that make it possible for them to mediate the blessings of God to creation so that others can look at them and relate to them and know them and come to see and hear and know and remember God. And that's where we are in the middle of this story, Exodus 16. It's another real pivotal shift. Israel's been rescued. This dramatic confrontation. God has displayed his power and his deep committed love to Israel, and he has brought them out. They, just when they thought that the rescue was going to be thwarted by the, by the footsteps of Pharaoh and his chariots, his great weapons of war, his technology and his hard heart coming after them to bring them back and turn them back into his own objects and resources, God acts again. And he brings Israel through the waters. And he brings them to Elam. Uh, well, he brings them first through the bitter waters that they can't drink. And, uh, and again, a miracle. God there takes care of their thirst and turns the water into water that they can drink. And together they go to this oasis of Elam. And there they're singing and dancing and celebration and victory and peace. And then the journey starts. And we come in with Israel in between this place. We all know that sense, right? When you have a really big party and it's really great and you've worked on it all week and then it's done. <laughs> or a big project even at work. You're in it. 
energetic for it, all about it. You even feel good about how it goes, but still when it's done, there is this sense of, what now? And that's where we come into this story. And that's where the challenge and tension is of this story. And that's where we come in and lean alongside to find out about these strange gifts of manna and Sabbath and what they have to do with Yahweh. We know the name, Yahweh. Now, now Israel can call God by name, but who is this God and what does life look like with him? And we learn right away from the beginning that the first thing that happens is they're mad. They're grumbling, complaining to Moses and Aaron. And the people want to turn back. They want to go back to Egypt. And they say, oh, how we wish that the Lord had just put us to death while we were still in the land of Egypt. There we could sit by the pots cooking meat and eat our fill of bread. Instead, you've brought us out into this desert to starve this whole assembly to death. Literally to kill us with famine. And we learn as the text goes on, though, that this is, I mean, in, in some ways, it's so understandable. At least to me it is as I read the text. Because if it's one thing to trust God through the dramatic rescue when the action is happening and when things are going on. And it's another thing to trust God as there is singing and dancing and rest after your enemies have been thwarted in their attempts to catch you and overtake you. And it's another thing to sit there and drink water together without the burden of work and the task to make more bricks and the burden and weight of it all on your back. But then it's another thing to look out forward into a wilderness, this desert, a landscape of insecurity where the very ground can shift dramatically from one windstorm to the next. It's literally the picture of chaos. And suddenly here they are away from the physical blessings of the Nile. Even though they were building up storehouses and part of their oppression was in building up and acquiring all of these resources and this sort of neurotic anxiety and fear, there was a shape to life. They were brick makers. They knew how to make bricks. They knew, they knew how to build the containers and the vessel for life. There was order. There were patterns. There were rhythms. And there was knowledge at least that you'd know that the meat pot would be full. How do, you, how do they make for the things of life now? What does a brickmaker do on a journey? So they've got the promised land in front of them. They can trust that. And they've got the memory of this salvation behind them. But the crisis that emerges, even though it manifests itself with the idea of hunger and food, it's this deeper crisis we see in the text. It's, it's, it's the fact that in a weird way, and I think this is so true for us, we can trust the dramatic intervention of God in the past. We can genuinely trust something good is out in front of us in the future. But how do we trust God and can we trust God to make life with us daily? 
to give us the resources for making life. And Israel is looking out at making life from scratch, and they're being asked to look out into the desert, away from the city, away from everything they were born into. For generations, they've known that this is where life is. And it is scary. And that's exactly what turns out to be in the text. An issue is that it becomes clear that their anger, though it manifests itself in terms of Moses and Aaron, and don't we do that? We scapegoat the system. <laughs> we remember that system, and that system felt really good. And now we're here in this place, and we don't know what to do. And I, I'm deeply afraid of, of, uh, that God won't need us here and won't take care of us daily and won't give us food and give food for my kids and, and continue to give water every day. And, and what am I supposed to do? And are we just supposed to walk forever? And we think... Instead of crying out to God, which is the thing that started the whole story in the first place, it's Moses. This is, man, this was a bad plan. Moses, you messed up. Aaron, you messed up. But that's why the text begins with this issue of glory first. It can seem kind of strange to burst into the text. Before they deal with the manna, before they deal with the Sabbath, before God speaks to them, Moses and Aaron have to make it clear that their grumbling is not against Moses and Aaron. If they're grumbling here in this position, it's against God. Because God is the one that is shaping their experience. God is the one who has brought them here. And the question is whether or not God is still there. And if he is, what does it mean that God is there? And so the first thing that happens, and I think it's an amazing picture of the gospel here, right here in this Old Testament story, is that God, if you notice, there's nothing wrong with having an intermediary. Moses and Aaron both, both uh, play that role. And, and as we lean in with the remembering community, they're described as being like Moses is like God to Aaron. Aaron is like God to us. We, we come into this memory, and we, it, they are sort of uh, this foretaste of the priests that we're, we're all called to become. They're, they're mediating this relationship with God. But in this case, God doesn't wait for Moses to talk to him or Aaron to talk to him. It's God who takes the first step because this is still the same God who was vulnerable and heard their cries in Egypt. And so even if it's grumbling, which is absolutely pejorative, <laughs> so even if God says, oh, I hear it, I hear their grumbling, okay. God responds first. It is God's action shaping this and responds not with anger, but he says, I'm going to rain down Bring down meat. I'm going to bring down food from the heavens. But when he gathers the assembly together, this amazing, surprising thing happens. It's not just Moses and Aaron's word to the people that God's going to do this for them. They actually catch a glimpse of God's glory. It's clouded. It's shrouded. And the text uses this really weird phrase that people have spilled way too much ink over, in my opinion. <laughs> but they're already in the wilderness, but it says that they had to look to the wilderness and see God's glory. And it seems weird only because they are in the wilderness already, but, but there's this sense where it makes it clear what's going on is that they have to put their backs to Egypt. 
and they have to look out in the landscape of death, the landscape of chaos, the landscape of lack of control, the landscape of a future being shaped in the present with this God, and they have to see the glory of God there and put the glory of Pharaoh behind them. And this idea of glory, this is about worship. This is about beauty. This is about love. It's this word, kvod, it has this sense of weight, this heavy weight around which things orbit. It's the thing that brings order. And they have to look and learn who this Yahweh is, learn the character and shape of his name here, in this place, not somewhere else. And that's the whole story that we're taking on through this, is that is to, to come to see glory and beauty and have all the attracting, compelling powers of making life together be totally new, forgetting the regime of Pharaoh, the anxiety, the burden, the, uh, the attempt to accumulate and control, even if it means possessing other human beings in, and endlessly accumulating and storing up resource in these houses uh, and move into this wilderness, this space, and make for the stuff of life with God. And that's where this idea of testing comes from. It's so important, it gets screened out when you read it in the English. And you have to keep reminding yourself, most of the time in these stories in the Pentateuch, there are times where the people of Israel are um, people, a nation. Most of the time, though, it's the children of Israel. And that child language is so important. The testing that God gives them by giving them gifts, but also instructions associated with those gifts. These things are given to them to test them, it says. It is every bit about coming to learn to be children of Yahweh, children of the promise. And the restoration into that that mission that Adam and Eve had to, to fill the earth, to multiply, to, to fill it with God's image. This is about coming to be like the father, like the parent, and in a relationship of deep trust where you're nourished and nurtured. And so that's where these weird gifts of the manna and the Sabbath come in. And we look at their character and their strangeness and and the struggle that Israel has to, to receive them. And the community that testifies to this and this memory and the way that it connects all the way up to Jesus and to our very life together remains, just, I think, it, it, the, the Exodus story is the story of making the stuff of real human life, beneficial, true human life and true human freedom in community with God. It remains ever relevant. And so we look at these things not just as laws or rules or and it's so important that this manna experience and the instructions around it and the Sabbath and the instructions around it even though they become codified in, in legal codes and in the covenant at Sinai, it's important that they're given here. Not ahead in that formal contract. Not just in the law. They are received here as signs. 
These are, again, like so many of the things in Exodus signs that are pointing past themselves and pointing to God and to Yahweh. And so these instructions come out to the people. And the bread rains down, and God explains that he's going to rain down this bread, that you're going to go out, and you can't store it up. First thing that happens is, on the one hand, I'm going to rain down bread from heaven. You're going to have as much as you need. Also, I'm going to totally limit it. You can't save it. You can't put it in a cupboard. You can't put it in a jar. It's only for the day. And so I think it's important when you read the story to ask yourself and approach it as it's the limit and the instructions that come from God. And respecting those instructions and how you approach the gift together are what make the sign that points to something more. And with Sabbath as well. All of a sudden he says, okay, so I'm going to rain it down from heaven, but you can't save it, you can't store it. You have to accept the fact that it's conditional on every day. Oh, and also, on the sixth day you're going to get twice as much, and I don't want anybody to do anything on the seventh day. You're going to rest. Sit in your tents and do nothing. We've read it so many times. It's like the face gets rubbed off the coin. You don't know how special it is. How strange is that instruction? They've got a place to go. They have to go to the promised land. They're on a journey. What on earth is this about? Why do we have to rest and sit and stay here? The people struggle with it. And this word manna for bread, it's amazing. <laughs> the, the word itself, literally, it, it comes from the man. It means, uh, what is it? And you see that, that, that the testing and this, this issue of hearing God and receiving the gift as gift is, is written into the story and into the very name of this bread and how it's given. They say, what is it? Which is where it gets its name from. So bread, manna. It literally, it's bread that asks a question of you. <laughs> and forever, it's bread that asks a question of you and asks a question of the community. What is it? But when they ask that question of Moses, Moses doesn't take up the answer. He doesn't actually get into a discussion of what kind of bread it is, how it's different than others. He says it's, it's the bread that God has given you. It's the gift. You receive it as the gift. And the Sabbath, too, is characterized as a gift. And the people struggle with it, with both of them. On the one hand, they take this, this manna and they want to save it up. The text in English, as it's translated, it gets a little confusing. It makes it seem, sometimes if you read it quickly, it can make it seem like the people who tried to save extra had less. And the people who had, but it, it's not. The idea is that people who collected a lot found that they had an omer. But they were out there for an hour. And they had an omer. And people who went out and just grabbed a few came in and measured it and found that they had an omer. The, the amount that's given doesn't correspond even to the action and the behavior of the people. It corresponds to the gift. It's what God has decreed. It's the daily bread. It's what you need. And the conditions built into the very substance. People who try to, try to sneak it and say, okay, well now I've got the omer. Now it's my possession, so I'm going to put it in a jar. It's mine, it's in my tent. And the next day it spoils. 
the conditions are within the gift itself and are part of the gift. This has to be daily. And on the day of the Sabbath, when people struggle with that too, they resist it too. They, they want to go out. They, 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 they want to go out. Don't why take a day off. Maybe, maybe there's some out there and maybe there won't be any tomorrow. And, and, you know, and it's boring to sit around anyway. It's hard to sit still. But when they go out, they're stopped and they're reprimanded because they're asked to sit and to stay. It's an amazing thing if I can take an aside here. Um, if you look at legal codes from Lippet Ishtar, like back before Code of Hammurabi, Code of Hammurabi, the Assyrian codes, they all have these laws built into them that are what I call snitching laws. It says that if you see your neighbor's farm, they're not taking care of their crops, you could turn them in. And you might be able to get their land. But it's your job to turn your neighbor in for not working the land. And if you think about it, it makes sense. Because in a subsistence economy, you want to make sure that nobody's letting good land spoil. You need food. So these things have codified into them this rule of accountability to make sure you don't rest. To make sure you don't ease up too much. Keep it moving. Make sure there's enough. And here it's just the opposite. They're going to go out of their tent and say, hey, chill out. Not today. This is a gift from God. Sit with God. And it calls back to the, to the creation story, right? And that's a fundamental thing, too, in the sense that this is part of the gift. When God made the earth, he made the world, and on the seventh day, he rested. And it's as though that rest is not separate from creation. That resting and appreciating and beholding and saying it's good and knowing it's good and being silent in the present of an earth that gives life, that's filled with life, that's filled with image bearers, to sit and know it as gift, as act of creation, is part of the creation. It's part of participating in reality. But the struggle is there. They, even though they were oppressed by the system, they know it, it's familiar, and they want to go back. And so there's this tension with being shaped into it and going, and they keep, they keep wanting to do it. And I, th I think this is, this is our struggle, right? Because we're, we, we inherit the world we're born into. And we're born into a world where the default mode is fear of death and covering over vulnerabilities, deep fear of death, even though nobody wants to talk about death. So then you make sure you don't talk about death, and so then death is secretly actually worshipped by success, but we call it success, and, and you've got you to do good. And if you do the right things, you're success, and, and even, even in some ways, the, the, you know, it will be the struggle throughout the, the Bible as well, this question of, of doing a good thing and being blessed and not doing the right things and being cursed. It's something that, that continues to be a tension within the memory and the teaching of the scripture. Tom's doing an amazing class on that. If you're interested in going through that journey all the way through the Bible up until Jesus, you see it. But it's a struggle because we, we want, even if it's oppressive, we have this need, we're born into this system that worships scarcity. 
the whole system. We worship the displacement of power, if I can say it that way. Imagine if they were allowed to put the manna in jars. Imagine if you were allowed to put the manna in jars and keep the manna in jars. Well, okay. So then it would become really about making sure you had a really good jar. Because if you have a really good jar, then a good jar can make it last longer and can keep it longer. And if you can have it longer, then you know that you'll definitely be safe more. And if you got really good at making the jars, well, then maybe you could also get really good at being there early and harvesting enough of the jars to make sure that you have a lot. Everybody gets manna, right? So, so it comes every day. So it's not really selfish. And, and the, the, the ritual could also come, become about actually being there in the morning to see the manna form, to watch the manna form, to worship the manna, the manna that comes and forms and goes in my jar that I build. That I make. You can sense the displacement of power. Suddenly the power is in the jar. The power is in the harvesting. The power is in the bread itself instead of it being the what's it. Not confusing the gift for the giving. And we displace power like that all the time. We see power and get it twisted in all kinds of interesting ways in our whole our whole reality. I, I think of, uh, we're in the Black, Black History Month here, and I, I think about Martin Luther King when he wrote in, where do we go from here? Chaos or community, looking back. And he came to be critical of even his own posture and the posture of others, one great example of it is, is in the relationship of peace. Toward the end of his life, he started saying, gosh, you know, we have got it all wrong. We talk about working for peace, striving to build peace. And so the power of peace is not in peace itself anymore. The power is in the diplomatic ability to do it, the ability to be an economy that has enough resources to mobilize enough people to make peace happen. And then secretly, maybe underneath it all, is the fact that we have nuclear warheads, right? So actually, the matter of keeping peace is actually making sure that we have the biggest, heaviest threat. The power all gets displaced. The power isn't in peace itself. The power is in all these different things that make for peace. It's Rome's peace, peace by the sword. So what really matters is the sword. And Martin Luther King said, no, what we need to do, and it sounds pie in the sky, but it's not. It's actually so real and so true that we can almost not bear the weight of it. If you want peace, be peaceful. That's where the power is. And that is bound up in receiving life as a gift, something that comes from God, something that is a blessing, is sacred. And we also find ourselves caught up, too, I think, in this idea of nothing is enough, it, it's, it's all connected to the same thing, this myth of scarcity, this idea that we won't have enough. A lot of times parents get stuck in the tropes, and I feel like I'm getting old enough that, that I'm supposed to fulfill these tropes now, right? And we're supposed to say, oh, you know, the kids have it so easy these days. I do not envy and am deeply concerned for my own daughter and son as they grow up. Think about the limitlessness of the personal brand the image of the individual. There is this sense because of the removal of the limits of body in the online social space, which has blessings. Don't hear this as me being a, a curmudgeon and, and, and saying there's just, everything's wrong with the internet. Don't hear that. Just receive the nuance of it. But there's a sense in which children growing up in this world are expected to be aware of so many things 
beyond the limits of their actually body and time of space, to know so much more than they used to have to know because technically you can be in all these different places online, to have so many more eyes on you than you ever would have had, privacy becomes almost something that you can't choose to have and to maintain and to explore as you're developing. And there is this sense of needing to make sure that you are presenting, doing enough, being enough, seeing enough, 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 just endless, 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 endless. And this thing creeps in of trying to make yourself out of fear, of the fear of not enoughness. I actually say that sometimes in my prayer. Please help me, God, to accept my enoughness. Um, Enoughness is a really terrible thing. And that's what these gifts are all about, right? The, the gifts, including the limits, are the signs that point beyond themselves. It's not in the, in the laws themselves and in keeping the rules in and of themselves. It's not. And Deuteronomy goes on to even show us that. It, it, it's the testing to build up the trust that you would know that the instructions are not good in and of themselves because they accomplish something or turn the manor lever, the manna lever and let manna fall down. But rather, it's to know that God's deep desire is to do good. In Deuteronomy, it says it best. Uh, <laughs> otherwise, you'll forget the Lord. Do, don't forget the Lord, who, uh, God, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you your power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. The dailiness of it points to hmm, not following the rules to get rewarded. It's to partnership and presence. God is not back there where they were saved from Egypt. God is not out there ahead of them. God is with them right there. And the point of sitting in that tent for that day and hearing the wind and knowing that there's nothing to be built, there's nothing to be done, Part of it is God saying, part of what you have to learn is you are enough right now. It's you that I want. And we can make life together. (laughs) It might seem strange to you, but we can do it. And that's what the story's all about. The brickmaker's artistry won't be lost. The whole story goes to Exodus, uh, through Exodus 19 and into the end where these great artisans begin building the most beautiful, amazing, uh, 
fabrics to put up on the tabernacle and to build the most amazing priestly garbs to wear and the colorful things on their very bones in their identity with the priesthood and so that they can know and experience and reflect God's presence with them. And that is good news. But it's hard to see the daily aspects of it all the time. It's hard to see because so many forces around us worship that process of accumulation. And Sabbath you know, it's amazing. It's easy to forget where it goes because we think of it as a rule and we're, we've been set free from so many of the codified laws now as we, as we try to take, take in the things that they pointed to, which is Jesus' own self. But Sabbath, in this way, is, is a constant space of resistance because it's the way of God to be people who rest, who, who receive life as a gift, sacred to be respected, and to trust that the stuff that makes life happen, that shapes life, comes from God. From God and God's presence. And seeking that. And crying out, not against Moses and Aaron, but when things get rough, crying out to God. That remains in the experience of exile. In, in all these different experiences, Sabbath remains that symbol of resistance against oppressive systems, of resistance against sin, and of resistance against injustice. In Isaiah 55, it's, it's this picture uh, called out to people who are in exile. Why are you spending money on bread that doesn't fill you? Why are you starting to think that the power is in Babylon? The power is not in Babylon. And in Isaiah 56, Sabbath becomes the thing that transcends even the boundary lines of ethnic markers in Israel. Sabbath becomes the thing that any foreigner who keeps the Sabbath will have a place with God and a place among the people and a place in the promises. It's because it's the sign that points beyond itself to life. Life with God, life is a gift and the idea of God's presence that God loves you. And I have to skip through to the end here. But let me just make a couple connections to what we've been looking at in Luke. It's so easy, well, it's not easy, it took a lot of prayer and a lot of thinking to start to see the ways that Sabbath and manna with the limits are part of the gift. I don't want to make it sound like it's easy, but it's e once you catch a glimpse of it, it's easy, sure easy to proclaim and a lot harder to feel in your bones. And trust. And it takes a lifetime of work to see it and to know it, to live into it and to trust it. And there is a sense, I think, always throughout the scriptures uh, and, and also in our own personal lives of a sense that even if, that, that almost we cannot be good enough at knowing that we're enough, right? <laughs> because my reflexes are always back towards that accumulation and that self-trust. And so now I'm trapped. So now I can't even trust the promise that God says I'm enough, enough to know that I'm enough so that I'm just enough and so that I can rest. <laughs> it is this human trap. Bowie, David Bowie has this song that he wrote toward, later on in his life. Um, and never try to guess what a Bowie song is because a lot of the times he would cut up the words and throw them on the floor and do other kind of exercises, uh, and, and often said he didn't know what his songs meant until afterwards. But this particular song has a really powerful refrain. 
and I feel like I feel it in his bones. It was when he was terminal in his illness. And just the refrain over and over again, this great mournful swoon is, I can't give everything away. I can't give everything away. I can't give everything away. We feel that. We sense that. There's a sense of we want to worship this glory and know this God. But that's the good news of the gospel. When we come and we proclaim Jesus Christ, it's Jesus Christ who comes and makes this life real in the world. Jesus came, we've just looked at it in Luke, comes along and he looks out and he says, where's the kingdom of God? Where's the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God's not far. He draws near to the glory of God, the way that Israel was called to draw near to the glory of God in the wilderness. He draws near and says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Look, there it is. Where is it? With the powerful, with the people who have? No, it's right there. People who are poor. The people who don't have. The people who are open-palmed and waiting. It's there in the children. The children who haven't been conditioned to worship neurotic anxiety <laughs> and instead worship life as gift life as blessing and are open to learning new things and to learning new ways of living and Jesus himself dispossesses gives away and receives himself and who he is from God every day each day being the son worshiping the father's will and worshiping the father enough to bear in his glory and does so all the way until not just the wilderness, but in the actual darkness of death, makes life with God. All the way there, where you should not be able to come back from. And even there, together with God, makes life. The Son receiving the glory of the Father, and the Father being glorified in the Son. God comes to be present through the Holy Spirit, to live with us. And we live in this eighth day, past the, not the sixth day where we get to celebrate and pick up double, not on the seventh day where we sit and rest, but in this eighth day, the church affirms, the first day of new creation. But it is just like this Exodus world, it's a new world, not just a different kind kind of way of thinking. It's a it's new creation, and the claim is that what has happened in Jesus has started this. And it is not, it's hard, it's a challenge every day. We're called to have our, our, our ideas transformed, and Jesus, as we just uh, read in the, in, the, in the gospel that Tom preached on not long ago, Jesus says, blessed is the one who does not stumble because of this, who is not scandalized by this. And the ultimate promise at the end of Matthew, what is it? I will be with you until the end of the ages. All of this is about presence. All of it is about presence. Sabbath, manna, the dailiness of it all is about being present, knowing that you're enough, seeing life as a gift, and receiving the things that make for that life from God. But it's not something we can mess up. That's the mystery of it. We strive, we aspire, we set our aim on things that are above, and we are transformed by it, and we're aware of our imperfections. We're not deluded in that, but it's, it's on Jesus' back. Jesus carries us. 
And Jesus shapes us, and Jesus feeds us, and Jesus carries us into the very life of God. I want to close with a brief prayer in thinking about this in terms of our own situation as a community in the pandemic. It may not have been the rescue of God that brought us out of our usual patterns. It may have been a plague. But, uh, but nevertheless, I think we find ourselves in some ways between Elam and, and between uh, somewhere else. <laughs> so let's, uh, let's lift our hearts up to God, keeping that in mind here. Father, so many of the symbols of community that we're used to trusting that give shape to our daily life have been shuffled, shifted. In some ways, we're just not practicing them. In other ways, we're finding that we were making bricks for Pharaoh and people are trying to find new ways of living. God, help us in this time of insecurity and wilderness to know that to not scapegoat, to not blame Moses and Aaron, to not look to the institutions of education or even church practices and, and assume that there must be something fundamentally wrong with it all or that maybe life wasn't meaningful, God. So many people are struggling with acute depression as a result of the cessation of the pageantry of daily life, God, wondering about meaningfulness. Help us, Lord, to, to know that whatever we had before that was good was manna from you. The life that we have is characterized by trusting and resting in you. If we cry out, God, let us cry out to you. Help us, God, to meet you in this space, to build and create life with you joyfully. And help us to trust that we'll discover a way that is light, a yoke that is not burdensome, and to, to let Jesus carry us along, dear Lord, and give us freedom in you. Lord, we uh, close with the uh, words of our Lord, our Father who is in heaven. Lord, let your name be celebrated and remembered and honored. Give us today this day's bread, just this day's bread, Lord. God, forgive those who have taken things from us back, taken things from us and can never pay us back, Lord. And God, forgive us for things we have taken from others and will never be able to give back. God, we need to be delivered from evil, from all of the ways that are not from you and are not you, and to discover that not as burdensome transformation, but as real joy in you. God, we pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus, who is the bread of life. Amen.